Yo, yo there, SE land. This is Twig. How's our connection? Volume level okay? This is Twig's SE Reflections, a podcast series for SE students and practitioners everywhere. All of you fine folk out there that are studying the psychobiological literature and somatic healing arts, polyvagal theory by Stephen Porges and work of Peter Levine, somatic experiencing, Stephen Hoskinson, organic intelligence, the whole alphabet soup of the somatic therapies out there. I'm an advocate and enthusiast here to chat you up about a vital, seriously vital piece of our work, orientation invitations into orientation specifically. Here's a personal thing for me. I really like serendipity. I'm a huge fan of serendipity. And this is a completely serendipitous episode, at least from me or from my perspective. I have been planning on this episode for a long time. I have been planning for a short period of time that this episode would be what I talk about this week, episode 94, and just so happens in the same week that I was thinking about it and working on it and preparing to chat you up about inviting people into orientation, I received two specific requests in the same week to look at the same question. Can you chat us up about how to invite or how you think about inviting people into orientation in sessions? And I'm like, yeah, I can do that because I was going to, and here I am. I'm doing it. Are we in the same podcast? Yes. Happy to hear that. How to invite our clients in our specific kind of sessions, somatic experiencing style stuff. How to invite people into orientation. Well, what else could be said except for naming right at the beginning how orientation is part and parcel of the pattern of the mammalian stress response. At the moment of startle, we look around to assess the threat. You know, we orient. At the moment of regaining sufficient safety, we look around to see where we're at and reorient, kind of see any more danger going on here. The beginning and the end of the mammalian stress response has a stereotypical pattern that includes, for very good evolutionary reasons, for very good neurological reasons, for very good self-defensive reasons, for very good physiological reasons, we orient mammals, you, me, other critters that have a four-chamber heart. We orient at the beginning and the end of the stress response. And since one of our primary goals in sessions is to help people recover or develop a fluency with the experiencing of the stress response successfully, you know, so that it kind of moves through and does all of its phases and comes to resolution rather than getting caught up in itself and repetitive or mis-signaling or chaotic or just kind of stuck and arrested and going off unnecessarily. Our goal is to help people move through the stress response. So it's like, yeah, orientation is kind of like part and parcel to the stress response. It's also part and parcel to 
the pattern of our sessions. It's, it's right there. And it's so many more layers than that. You know, it's, it's used as a buffer between activation cycles in our sessions. It's used that way as both just something else to do other than another activation cycle. And it's also used because it's got positive regulatory influence. It's a stimulation and use of the ventral vagal complex. And particularly when that includes free movement of the eyes, head and neck, and open engaged attention, that has positive physiological value. So if we're inserting that in sessions, there's like kind of like reason for it. I remember, (laughs) I've been thinking about this. I remember one time Peter Levine blew my mind around orientation, just stood there, the universe kind of like shaking around me as I, um, it was, it was in an advanced training in San Diego. I think it was 2005, could have been 2006. I've been wrestling with that, but in any case, he kind of gave this nice introduction to a planned triad episode and, and everybody was sent off to go do a session, triad session with the emphasis being on the very beginning of the session, including conversation and talking back and forth in an oriented kind of way to the present moment, to just what was happening right now, to try to just get the conversation to go around this moment and have the relational back and forth, the dyadic relationship rather than just one person talking or jumping straight into the arousing or kind of traumatic material, you know, just to have this opening conversation. And the group was splitting, you know, it's like big hustle bustle. And and Peter kind of like leaned in as like an afterthought and said, you know why this is important, right? And then he started talking about the dorsal vagal and the ventral vagal influence on the sinoatrial node and how they have these varying different amounts of influence. And for the dorsal vagal system to be able to slow the heart into the range of what we think of as kind of dorsal vagal dominant, super high tone of the dorsal vagal system, which is going to shut down the heart rate. It's able to do that because it's co-opting fibers from the nucleus ambiguous side of the ventral vagal complex, its influence on the sinoatrial node, and it's using those ventral vagal fibers so as to have a stronger influence on slowing down the heart rate. Peter goes into this kind of stuff, background stuff behind it, And he says, you see, if you start your sessions with conversation and orientation, then you will stimulate the ventral vagal system to be working. And as we say in the kind of Porgesian literature, if you you stimulate any part of the ventral vagal complex, you stimulate the entire complex. So if you stimulate the eyes or you use the vocal cords, you know, particularly in a prosodic way, in a kind of ventral vagal dominant kind of way, or you listen to certain frequencies, you will stimulate the ventral vagal complex and you'll give over control or you'll take back control. In the case of co-optation from the dorsal vagal complex, you'll take back control of the ventral vagal complex's influence on the sinoatrial node and people will feel a little lighter, feel a little better, feel a little less burdened, at least temporarily, while they're engaged in talking with you and looking around. I was standing there in the middle of the crowd, 
everybody dispersing, Peter kind of doing this afterthought thing. And I thought, oh, that's why Stephen Hoskinson has always kind of encouraged me so intently, and so many others really, to start with my sessions trending toward orientation whenever possible. And there's a perfectly Porgesian, polyvagal informed reason behind that. Well, you know, I, I was a devotee ever since because we went in and I could kind of do that practice and could see it and, and it was, okay, yeah, I was looking at the science and thinking, yeah, that makes sense. If you stimulate the ventral vagal complex along the system, you know, anywhere along the complex, you innervate that whole complex and it has a regulatory influence on the other subsystems. So if it's being co-opted, it could take back over its kind of influence and in fact, what that does for mammals is it helps us feel a little calmer. So orientation, start your sessions with orientation. It's like back there, just blowing my mind. Oh my goodness. Well, you know, I should say, there could be other reasons that Steve suggests that people start with orientation. I know I've talked with him about that before, and he's definitely on hip on all the physiology reasons, but there might be other things that he's got going on with that. Not going to say that I know. And... There are other ways that we could reference the role of orientation in our sessions, right? Here's a reference I can make, which actually so far comes from an unpublished interview that I did with Ian McNaughton, you know, that grand man, Ian McNaughton, he, he wrote Body, Breath, and Consciousness, edited that, kind of put that anthology together. It's a somatic therapy anthology. You have it on your bookshelf, right? Of course you do. Of course you do. Well, Ian and I sat down and recorded an interview Back in 2010, actually, it could see the light of day yet. And in that in that conversation, Ian shared that he had been a part of Peter Levine's, say, early experimentations back in Berkeley. And some of those included these very deep felt-sense explorations that apparently were aided by the use of an eye mask so that you would kind of wear this eye mask and then go profoundly deep into the felt sense interior landscape and experience, you know, kind of maybe hunting pendulation at a very deep level down there, something like that. Well, Ian shared in this interview that, that there were, there were times after this that he would have days and days of a profound disorientation as he walked around Berkeley. So there you go. It could be that the value of orientation is a, a growing awareness in our field that wasn't always there and may yet be enhanced still. Well, there are other helpful things to note about orientation in our sessions. Let's name a few, but not try to make an exhaustive list, but there's a few here that are important. So you can use it as a diagnostic measurement to judge available attention to the present tense, the present like ability to see where a person's at, and then the client's ability to join your request as the practitioner, to be able to join with you when you ask for something like this, to be able to see if and how much they're willing to go along with you. In several ways, this helps to give a measurement of how a person's doing along the resiliency spectrum with different subsystems of the ANS having particular different kinds of influence and patterns and access or influence on access to attention so that you'll see people, depending on their ANS state, respond differently to the request of orientation or even to your observation of how much orientation they do 
on their own, right? So you'll have with ventral vagal complex influence, you'll have eyes and head and neck. They'll be more movable, particularly independently of the body and with more differentiation between each other. You know, the eyes can move freely of the head and the the head and the shoulders can kind of be free from one another. They don't all have to move as one big block. You'll have, you know, focus can be softer and there'll be more peripheral vision available. There'll be curiosity and attention to novelty. There'll be probably more spontaneous responses to novel shadows or visual cues or like responses to new sounds through the auditory channel, which is related to all of this. With more sympathetic system influence, you know, sympathetic nervous system influence, you'll have eyes and head and neck. They'll be, by degree, more locked or tense, more likely to turn as a unit, more likely to narrow the focus of vision and attention. It's like the figure will be separated from the background, so make some things really super interesting or important and other things kind of like virtually non-existent, like even ideas that right there on the right there on the margins but can't be seen. There'll be more hypervigilance or piercing gaze or extra effort, the sense of extra effort. You know, that partly happens because there's lower peripheral vision and now the head and neck have to compensate to help turn and see things and respond to novelty. And so with that more sympathetic system, it's just like there's just a more effort in it all if we're looking around at all in the first place. Well, with the DVC influence, you know, orientation is minimized. There's limited interest in novelty and lack of movement becomes kind of like, whoa, just like person doesn't really look around very much or move their head very much or move other parts of their body very much. It kind of says something. And of course, there's the thousand mile stare, kind of like just really zoning out or generalized non-differentiated spaciness. All of those are information about what's going on in the person's autonomic nervous system. Particularly the more spontaneous their behavior becomes, the more you'll be able to see what their autonomic nervous system state, what the real influence of it is. Is it more ventrally vaguely dominated and therefore orientation just as a natural course of attention, which is associated. It's like orientation is associated to that system. You are more oriented when that system is working or is it tighter and more effortful, more constrained, overcoupled in the language, you know, on the sympathetic side or undercoupled, diffused, totally not available on the dorsal vagal side. That's all diagnostic. Now, it's not necessarily diagnostic. <laughs> you know, you, you should hold it as a practitioner's hypothesis. At least I would seriously encourage that. You got to test it against other evidence. We should always remember Peter, Peter Levine's comment. He says, I never trust my hypothesis unless I have two, three, or more channels all telling me the same thing. It's like, we really have to pay attention to that. We can't just be like, I know who you are. And anyway, it's a hypothesis about available orientation, and it's common about the autonomic nervous system state. 
it's something that's going to have to be constantly updated and reconsidered because that stuff is highly, highly variable from one moment to the next based on at, at least a central piece of the theory seems to be a grounded physiological fact that we can witness over and over and over again. It's like neuroception based, the available spontaneous or lack thereof orientation is a comment about relative neuroception of this particular moment. And that's going to change as your session goes forward. There's also a bunch of other stuff in our orientation and sessions kind of thing. It's like there's the intentional stimulus and use of the ventral vagal complex as if you're trying to stimulate the system in order to turn that on, you know, and we talked about that a little bit before. We'll touch it again, actually. And then there's a form of modeling the stress response pattern particularly this is often super missed out there in the world and it's clearly an expected part of the biological process and a big element of our sessions is to reestablish taking the time to reorient at the back side of the stress response when things are deactivating rather than just kind of racing on to the next danger or the next problem or the next thing to be attended to it's part of the it's part of the task and we sometimes just kind of put it in the session so as to model that that's a pattern that we're trying to recover. It's a biological thing that's just kind of waiting to be reinforced enough that it gets to claim its day again. We mentioned it before, but let's let's hit it again. Just it's like structuring the session for activation and deactivation cycles so that you have a, a buffer or some space between one and the next of those. That used to be kind of called, it might still be called like a single titration, you know, or in Stephen Hoskinson's language, it's like a pendulation sandwich. That buffer, bookmark, or kind of separator by orientation, it it may easily include the gift of gab kind of time of talking and stretching that out in a conversation. That's still more classic ventral vagal kind of time. And... We often need to insert that structurally in our sessions so that it's not just one rise, next rise, little fall, next rise. We often try to take more buffer. Ventral vagal, it's right there, orientation. It's a great way to do that. Also, orientation in our sessions can be a really important marker. Marker for maybe, say, the the session itself, the particular session, or the course of sessions, like a a marker of how we're progressing, like which direction are things going in. Somehow, as things move along, we should see increased ease, veracity, you know, like authenticity, the significance or value of orientation, even the lingering in orientation. It should improve. It should get longer. We should see some trend toward increased access and utilization of orientation. And if we don't see that, then we're probably wondering, hey, you know, what do I need to do in order to make sure that more of that is happening? Because on the scale of orientation to disorientation, we're definitely trying to just pick up where we're at and turn in the direction that we want to go. That is more orientation. Back in my Stories of Completion autobiographical stage show where I describe my SE journey, 
I mentioned a moment in maybe my third or fourth session with Stephen Hoskinson where I suddenly noticed, saw a huge window. <laughs> I commented, I said, oh my gosh, there's a window there. I hadn't even, hadn't even seen it. That's a definitive sign that things are going in the right direction. Clear evidence that you're headed in the right direction when somebody notices something that was totally obvious that they really hadn't seen before. There's more subtle ways to see improvement too, you know, and visual acuity or interest. I mentioned one in episode 87 on trying things once when I left my first private SE session and noticed the vividness of all the pine needles on the trees as I walked outside. Truthfully, there's like hundreds of examples. Seeing better, seeing clearer during and after sessions during my own healing journey and really, you know, just just countless, totally countless times of clients reporting in sessions. Things look brighter, more neutral, clearer, some such marker of increased orientation. Keeping track of improved or degraded orientation is a helpful metric in our sessions, and it, it totally tells us a lot about how we're doing and where we're going. You may even have a client say someday, I went to my eye doctor and they said my eyesight's improved. That's not something to say in advance as an expectation or a hope. You know, it's, it's really not something you could possibly predict. And when you do hear that, if you ever get to hear that, you don't want to necessarily assume responsibility for it because who knows, you know, but it is nice. It's a nice bit of job satisfaction to think that you helping people to recover more ventral vagal dominance to engage their orientation more in various different ways that we do in sessions. You could you could like to think that that could help to be part of what helps a person see better. And sometimes people do report things like that. That's always nice. Well, look, let's not try to be exhaustive, right? We're, there's the whys, the wherefores. There are more reasons. There's more reasons to include orientation. But our primary concern here is the issue of how do we successfully invite and encourage or even direct or sometimes cajole our clients. Sometimes, you know, you have to, in a clinically responsible way, truly manipulate your client's attention in order to try to get more orientation. All of this from invitation to direction, it means something to want to be able to do it. But the real challenge is how do you, how do you get that through to actually meaning something in practical use. How do you how do you take all this knowledge about how interesting and important orientation is and turn it into people actually doing it with you? Because of course it's remarkable how disorienting and disoriented, unoriented, in or like not oriented we can remain even while we entertain and fervently discuss theory and importance of orientation. That can be true for us and our conversations amongst each other. That can be true for us and our clients. That can be true for our clients. That can be true all the time. We can 
talk about things that we don't actually do, and talking about them is not the same value. Knowing about them is not the same value as actually engaging the process. So, hey, the concern that you and I have is how do we invite people into orientation, right? That's what we're here for. Well, you got to know, if I see a problem coming in how we talk about it, I should mention the problem first rather than having the problem and then cleaning up the mess afterwards. So in the direction of naming some ideas on how to invite orientation successfully, something we need to note is that differentiated subsystems or ANS influences on people's access and ability to orient, and even the observed fact that orientation is highly variable. All of that, which we discussed before, means things to us in terms of how we invite people into orientation. Some clients are going to come in and notice your office. They're going to actually see it. They're going to notice the new flowers, or they're going to choose the seat that they're going to sit in after they look at all the furniture. They'll look at the place where their belongings go before they put it down. Maybe their bag, you know, notice the edge of the couch, and they'll put their bag on the edge of the couch. But they'll look there first, or they'll scan the room, maybe even comment on something that they like or they see or they noticed on the way in. Likely the interaction that you have with this person is going to have some quality of back and forth to it, some give and take, some breath in and out. It's going to be like a form of pendulation just hanging out or talking or getting to know each other at the very beginning. When this is your earliest sessions, you may still need and want to set up the structure of orientation as a pattern because it's a pattern that you want to have in your office with this person. And you're probably going to find that it's super easy to do it because this person that we just described there is completely already orienting. In fact, you may find this person of their own orients as you speak together, as you two are talking together, they just kind of at ease and in themselves continue to keep themselves oriented. It's not necessarily a big deal to keep yourself oriented in an enclosed space that doesn't have novel stimulus. So it's not as easy a test as though you were walking in a park where you might have the chance to have novel stimulus and get more opportunities to see how people respond to those, which subsystem works, see more orientation. Some people, they're just going to come in, they're going to have all that. Of course, there's a whole other range. There's a whole other side of the spectrum. There's a whole other extreme to that perspective of this oriented, interested in the world around them, paying attention kind of person. It's like, or presentation. To no fault of their own, there'll be somebody comes in and they bump against the desk as they walk in their bag falls on the floor because they didn't they didn't really look where they were putting their things before they let go of them before they moved on to the next thing perhaps they talk to you or maybe they don't talk to you and they more or less look as though they're looking into a big gray wall without differentiation from one end of this to the other it's a big long continuum right some people are not really taking in actively, in fact, probably better to 
appreciate that they're needing to actively withdraw from the environment. And here they are coming into your office and having to be challenged by the fact that they have to come into your office at that far end of the continuum. The resiliency spectrum, the trauma spectrum, it can be hard to get out in the world, which requires, which demands, which expects, which evolution has set us up for expecting the free ability to orient. This is a difficult kind of thing to have that and have to be in a world where kind of requires that you be able to attend to things. And there's a big long continuum here from disoriented to more and more oriented. And in it includes everything from hypervigilant scanning of the room for doors and windows, exit signs, reaches all the way over to genuinely not noticing huge picture windows several feet away, as in my earliest session with Steve. To be clear, that all may say a lot about how this person experiences the world generally, but it might just say something more specific about how this person experiences encounters with new people, or with therapy, or for that matter, just with you personally. Orientation and access and utilization of it is highly variable, and it changes moment to moment. At least it can. Well, I guess with some folks, it, we, you know, it, it's less likely to when you're truly burdened by nervous system somatic cues suggestive of a neuroception of chronic danger or life threat. Then, understandably, orientation is jeopardized by the influence from the sympathetic system or the dorsal system, dorsal vagal system. Or probably more accurately said, the lack of ventral vagal complex, because that's the primary thing that that means. Low orientation is lack of VVC as much as it is increased of the others. Well, you know, that can get pretty stuck at some point. So it can be low variability. People don't change much, but it's variable. And you have to you have to kind of be able to use something about this. You have to be able to see something about this when you're going to invite people to do it. All that stuff tells us things. Like one thing it says, don't judge people. They're probably doing the very best they can. And it also says that with more or less orientation already available, like just right there in the moment, this person is expressing more or less orientation. Your goal may always include trying to increase orientation in your sessions, but the different variety of presentation that you'll experience along that spectrum requires different responses or requests or styles of invitations from you. Invitations to orientation can't be one style fits all. It just won't work that way. You can't use the same line on everybody and expect to get the same result because of the variability of people's experience along the resiliency spectrum or the trauma spectrum or how their nervous system is currently reading its neuroceptive cues to say more or less orientation. With all due respect to the classic line, let your eyes go wherever they want to go, we want that. We, it's the liberating tonic. For some, it's right there. Oh, wow, I'm out of this cage of telling my eyes where to go. And all of a sudden, there's this allowance for something that's been truly needing to be given some free reign to. And one can feel breath and ease as a physiological consequence of the ventral vagal complex having more freedom to experience itself. And if one gives enough time and spaciousness and 
doesn't have too much noise going on, too much confusion going on, they can kind of notice those together. I let my eyes go where they want to go. A few moments later, I probably feel somehow a little bit easier. Yes, has to not get confused for that to work, but when it does not have that confusion, you kind of like just should expect that. The mammalian process on this planet has set things up for that. Let go of the tightening of the eyes. Let go of the sympathetic or the dorsal system on how the nervous system is kind of processing orientation. Let the eyes move again. That's the time when the ventral vagal complex kind of like takes a little bit more control over the pace of the heart and respiration. Whew, fun. Isn't that wonderful? It's wonderful. We want to get inside of that. We want to, we totally are into it. We so excited to make that happen. But everybody along that spectrum requires some different kind of thing. Let your eyes go wherever they want. For some, it's it's liberation. It's like, yay. For others, it's, it's a real experiment. Like, we're going to try this once, and we're going to see if this will work, and we're going to adjust accordingly. For some, it's complete nonsense. It's far, far too many of our people that come in for trauma recovery-focused sessions. A lot of them feel like an open allowance of their eyes to go where they want to go feels a bit like threatening or dangerous or stupid or overly directive or just too strange and new and novel or an interruption to an attraction that already had my attention. There would be so many different ways that get right in. Poof. No, let your eyes go wherever they want to go. That line is a perfect way to see how there's an entire range from the more to the less oriented and the more and the less interested in joining with your request to orient. The spectrum is as wide as it is deep. And though really it's probably non-discontinuous, meaning it's probably a blend all the way through, we do often talk about people in the sense of a dominant ANS, autonomic nervous system state and their respective activities. We don't name all the nuances usually, right? We usually say, oh, they're in fight, or they're in flight, or they're dissociated and frozen. But really, people and their behavior and responses to our re interventions are more nuanced than that, right? They're, you'll easily have someone who, they're clearly burdened by DVC freeze influence behavior. They're not independently trending toward orientation. You don't see them naturally of their own looking around. And yet they'll be very forthcoming, some of them, and totally willing to orient upon your appropriate request to them to engage in it. It's variable. I'm talking about here the importance of being able to recognize the difference in people and recognizing that part of our job is translating the request inside the somatic experiencing guidelines. The guideline that says, Orientation is key to your sessions. We have to translate that in such a way that each of our clients, the ones that we're, that we're, we're like, oh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to be artful with this person. We're trying to find the translation that takes that guideline, orientation is key, and makes it so that this client can accept the request and participate with it. The same can be said for 
titration or permission to watch discharge happen or any of the rest of the SE guidelines, you want this thing in your session to happen, we'll need to adjust our interventions in ways that speak to different kinds of people who are themselves compelled by various different subsystems of the autonomic nervous system that have genuine influence over that person's behavioral repertoire, right? Like what they're going to do and what, what they can put their attention to and what they're likely to have their attention going to already. And all of that is going to be heavily influenced by their ANS state. And it's part of our responsibility to see what the limits and influences of those are and, frankly, to kind of adjust our request to help folks achieve some success of what their ANS is probably already trying to accomplish right now, particularly if you see influence from the sympathetic or the dorsal vagal system when you're not actively in a situation of danger. If you're seeing repetitive cues of response to danger in situations where there is not actively danger, you're seeing the traumatic reaction, the traumatic reenactment, the biology trying to complete that process in order to get back to a ventral vagal dominance. That stuff needs to get to happen at the felt sense, physiological, neurological level in its own, as my lovely teacher, Amini Marshall Peller, who used to really help me ground down as a somatic therapist into body time, has to be integrated on body time. These things have to be sufficiently successful and you can't get it all at once and nobody's ready to do it all at once. And our job is to find what they can do where they're at that requires us to adjust our requests. This is totally vital if you want to have any sense of flow with the process and use of orientation in your office, precisely because orientation is both autonomic nervous system driven and the intersection between your client's neuroception of you and your style of request to get them to do something they may or may not instinctively want to do or even find interesting based on any number of this or that criteria, anything from personal idiosyncrasy, including not just liking it when people tell them what to do or ask them what to do or sensitively invite them what to do or any such thing. You don't even know. It's the intersection of all of that mess. And as you become more artful with it, you will have the opportunity to respond more uniquely to each person and their relative orientation. Here then is a place to mention episode 26 on three different types of questions. That's a place where it's totally easy to see changing our request in order to meet a variable like relative resiliency. It's this case with relative orientation. We adjust our request. So you could look at episode 26 on three different types of questions. But quickly said, we could break our question types down into three different categories. There certainly could be more, but let's break it down to like three different categories that can be used for different styles of response to our requests in sessions, right? There's open questions such as, what do you notice now? That's the most autonomous offer for people. They can answer anything they want. When that's reserved for folks who have enough resiliency or they're informed or participatory enough that you can 
more or less ask that question and get a spontaneous response to the question. It doesn't have to be a fast response, but it's like a spontaneous response. When they engage that question and reserve it for folks who are going to be able to succeed with that, it's a delightfully empowering way to do therapy. What do you notice now is like the ultimate client-centric approach. That is the gold standard as far as I'm concerned. What do you notice now? Your attention can go anywhere. And it's completely likely to lead to stalled sessions with way too many of our clients if you use it too early. You know, without enough guidance or context for what to pay attention to or a lower relative resiliency where it makes it difficult to answer questions or to choose a single option amongst a multitude of experiences that I could choose from, or it otherwise leads to you asking, what do you notice now? And you get back that probably most common SE response out there. I don't know. When we get, I don't know, responses to our open questions, we know we need to change something. It's like our request needs to change. Something needs to change. We we need to make it easier to answer it. So we can offer menued questions like, well, what do you notice now? Do you notice some pulling or some tightening or rotating sensation? Or is it maybe like something else? That's a menu. It's got like three or four potential answers embedded in the question with a closure that kind of returns autonomy. It kind of reopens the question to anything. So it's like this, 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 or that, or something else that kind of returns the person's empowerment. So you can kind of give them some structure and maintain their autonomy simultaneously. For those situations where a menu still receives a stalled response, a non-intrusive constrained question can keep momentum going forward. You just ask a small question that's got a this or that option to it that's meant to keep the momentum back and forth and keep the scope of the question inside the range of enough ease for the client to respond to it. Something like, is it more in the upper or more in the lower part? We can use a constrained this or that kind of question. Is it this? Is it that? Is it more this? Is it less that? Just to get the structure of back and forth call and response kind of stuff going. But just as much, we can use it when broader, more open style, like anything goes questions are getting in the way. Now I'm going to say, please don't badger people. Don't badger people. If you get really good with adjusting the scope of your questions, you can find a way to ask questions that people won't feel intruded upon. And yet you will still meet a person or two who just doesn't want you to ask questions. But now that you know how to do it, now that you know how to do it, you can kind of do it. And can I just ask you not to do that? Don't use them as just like, now I know how to, to kind of get past the thing that you didn't want me to get past when I didn't ask questions well. And you would show me this thing that would say, I don't want you to ask me questions. Can I ask you to do that? Now, you might, you know, it might become clinically relevant that you, you go ahead and you just, you use all of that skill to push past a person's constraint and their um, self-protection, you know, in their, their own space and everything. And, and, it, and it turns out that that was like the best thing that you could have done and, and you had to do it and it was the only person to do it. And, 
And using constrained questions, the smallest little ones, if you're going to push through somebody's resistance in this way to get them into their felt sense experience, to track something and follow it through, whatever it is like this, that's probably the only way you're going to be successful rather than an open question because at the open question level, they already don't want to participate and they don't really have much to go on. Anything I want to pay attention to, you know, it's like, screw you, like stop with your questions. That person who isn't just confused by your question, that person who isn't just like need a little bit more support in the titration pendulation process so they're not overwhelmed by their experience, but then they'll participate to you once you finally figure out how to engage all of this with them. There's somebody else out there who just doesn't want you to ask a question and now you get really super good and, you know, like give them their space. Let it happen when it's ready. Let them have some safety. Give it some time and see if they'll get ready. Okay, soapbox moment over. Going back to the point about the three different types of questions is that we're hoping that we can adjust our communication and structure of things so that we maximize our client's success and help things move forward rather than continue to try the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different response. I can say now with confidence that those three question types and how to mitigate them to find the just right amount of request or reflection from you to maximize available success or participation from your client, all of that is talked about exhaustively and in detail. Exhaustively means in detail in my guide to the SE language. Like that is a central feature there. So coming to orientation. We can use these three question types to modify the most common, most common that I know of orientation lines, phrases, let your eyes go wherever they want to go. That's the most common to be sure. And a kind of ultimate goal of permission and participation. Like that's, that's the allowance to just like, let your eyes go free, little animal, let your eyes go free. All the, all the oxen free. So with orientation, we could have an open question Oh, maybe you just let your eyes go wherever they want to go. Or we could have a menued question. Oh, you know, if if I ask you to look around the room a little bit, do you notice things that are more like colors or that are shapes? Or do you notice bigger things or littler things or something else? And then if we were to ask a constrained question, you know, we could like, well, do you notice the Swiss ball over there in the corner? Can you see that windowsill? I wonder if I can ask you if when you look out that window there, Do you see the tree branches swaying outside in the wind? There's another thing to point out inside the conversation on inviting orientation. We need to be clear that there's orientation and then there's orientation and then there's orientation. It's like there's at least three different very obvious distinctions of orientations as activities in our sessions. We can mark them out and they're each going to have their own variability, just like we've been talking about before. Each of these is going to have its own continuum. There are surely more orientations in our sessions, but let's at least name three, right? There's orientation as an intentional practice, as something you do, as something that is intentionally done or requested by the practitioner. You, You stop the session or you direct the session or you do something to say, let's do this thing. And that can still be a doing directed thing, even if it becomes something the client does of their own. If they're doing it as an activity, 
it's like this doing process of orientation. It's like directed behavior. There's lots of good reasons to do that stuff. It's like to stimulate the ventral vagal complex, to establish the pattern of putting orientation inside of activation cycles, all of that. It's an activity. It's an intervention. Totally good. It's not unlike intentionally doing a deep breath, you know, a deep breath that supposedly calms you down, which should be said and noted that doesn't happen for all people because different ANS subsystems have different responses to the request of a big, deep breath. Some people might find it calming. Some people truly might not. And yet looking around might become the new take a deep breath kind of activity. I am doing something in order to get the signal of something that should help me feel calmer in a moment. And um, if, if that happens, I'll be, I'll be cheerleading because that's a Porgesian and, for that matter, organically intelligent perspective, for sure. So there's orientation as an activity, and then there's the orientation response as part of the completion process and renegotiating incomplete self-protective responses. You know, as in the classic phrase, defensive and orienting responses. And that way we see it's like sessions, people are hanging out, their head starts to turn or their eyes start to orient in an explicit, non-volitional, involuntary response that's somehow more or less coming out of freeze or coming out of somatic dissociation or it's being executed. And in ideal cases, this movement is coming up and it's experiencing itself and the instruction to do it is in relationship to this process on its way to being extinguished. And we're just, we're jazzed. While we might do some of this to kind of help get into it, help people like kind of stimulate the process. Sometimes we do little parts of stimulating the orienting response, having people look around or having people move their head, having people feel into certain kinds of things in order to prime the reaction. The idea, of course, is that this feels as though it's happening of its own without the client feeling like they're doing it, but instead like it's just happening. That's one reason why we often pick up postural and preparatory movements that indicate this movement might already be happening. And while we do it, we have to encourage people to turn their attention to noticing it while simultaneously continuing to allow something that's already happening to happen, not to disrupt it. You know, there's, there's like lines, there's ways to do that. It's like you're, you like see their head starting to have that sense of orientation and you have the thought, if I just bring their attention to that, they might interrupt it. And so we might invite instead, hey, no, we might not say hey, <laughs> but we, we would say, continue. That's right, just continuing, just allowing yourself just to notice now. And I, I can't even truly be sure, really, it could be the light, I could be mistaken. But if you continue to just notice yourself now, if you notice a slight turn or tilt to your head, if you happen to notice that, maybe you just go ahead and continue to allow that to happen. And a hundred different adjustments could be made inside of that invitation to help something that is already taking place to continue to take place 
one thing that we have in our sessions a lot, a lot, we should assume that it's going to happen a lot, is the expression of the self-protective response of orientation and all the different jazz that comes along with it. Let's go ahead and say, if you don't have those preconditions like participation and ability to track experience, if those aren't already present, you have to you have to really guide people into that process of allowing their head to turn already. It's nice to get all those preconditions in place before you really kind of make that that dynamic turn of, ooh, this is already happening. Let's go ahead and turn and feel that now. Associated to the category of completing the orienting responses is everything from flickering of eyes, the trembling of the eyelids or wobbling of the head, bobbly movements, or it goes all the way up to coordinated eye-head-neck movements where everything just really gets in line and you have the profound sense. Everybody watching it, feeling it, would have the profound sense this is its own mysterious, amazing thing, which is in its own way, actually, a completely biological phenomena that can be explained. Okay, so let's name something about the flickering of the eyes and the sense of orientation as activation or coming out of freeze, as in discharge or deactivation. In all of that, it's important to keep updating your opinion about what this is and what that is. All that variability It's super important to recognize that in the eyes, things change, and they often follow a very sequential progress. The change and watching eyes kind of go blank and go into freeze and watching eyes move and dart under the eyelids, all of that has serious value places to place attention and to allow to happen and to make sure that you don't over-reinforce some part of it by thinking this is discharge prematurely or cheerleading discharge too much so that the person feels inclined to keep their attention with similar signals rather than notice other new things that come in to attention that would otherwise lead the process forward. Well, there, I step close to a pet peeve, enough soapboxing, and apologies to all of you who didn't quite get what I just rambled about. Now, one of the big things about completion of the orienting response is our hope to catch it as it's already expressing itself. It can be useful to prime it up and get it going by various means to kind of do it. So much of the gold and the relief in our sessions comes when a person tracks through an activation sequence that triggers off an involuntary and sincere deactivation sequence that comes complete with a spontaneous movement of the eyes, head, and neck, and kind of liberation of the orienting response. I've been a somatic adventurer for a long time. You know, as a child, I was like hyper anxious and just really got into all of the different intensities of feeling. And as a teenager, I found addictive pleasure as a way to compensate for some of my growing PTSD distress. And then I came of age as a product of this society in the cusp of the 21st century. I have had the opportunity to experiment with a lot of different physiological states, if you know what I mean. And nothing, nothing compares to how good it feels to come all the way out of freeze, up through some kind of fight-flight sequence if that's necessary, and and part of it sometimes really is for some of us, and sometimes it's not, and on into spontaneous orientation where the head wobbles and bobbles and the eyes 
you know, they like Peter Levine sometimes says like pulls things in like magnets. It's just like you can just see the world. It's just the best to have more access to seeing the present moment because your nervous system is no longer trying to attend to a threat that is no longer present, but which was calling your perceptual system to behave in a way that didn't allow you to see this environment the way that it is, but was instead colored by how you were influenced in order to pay attention to that environment. That's been proof positive for me that we should we should be able to compete with people who bottle things up and sell relief because this stuff, reorientation and the dramatic felt sense physiological like, oh God, that's good. That's just waiting to happen for people. It's a biological expectation. We should be able to compete. Well, moving on here. There's also orientation as a returning to the moment, as in spontaneous interest and just looking around because there's not a call from the sympathetic system or the dorsal vagal system and the ventral vagal system as a mammalian kind of set point for the the equilibrium or the balancing act or the dancing that's happening amongst all three of these different subsystems. In mammals, when we perceive ourselves to be safe enough, the ventral vagal system does its fine-tuning of the relative heart and respiration rate that allows the rest of our body to get the signal, hey, everything's okay here right now. And in that state, we're in the greatest amount of ease to respond to a novel stimulus should something change in the environment that says something bad might happen here, in which case we will then have the opportunity to respond accordingly because we'll get to see it and witness it in time. And something that happens along the course of evolution in making us more metabolically active critters, mammals, than our reptiles and amphibians and other critters of the deep is to maintain a higher heart rate and more kind of active physiological process, which needs to have this tight regulation so that, as Porges says, we don't bounce off the walls. That's the ventral vagal complex, and it's only able to do its task if the neuroception is saying, relative to this moment, I feel safe enough. And there will be times, by invitation, by simple social engagement, by the person just feeling good that day, by all kinds of different standards and ways to get there, you'll have orientation in the moment in your session. Breath will be genuinely easier heart rate will be easier down, like, you know, like things will just feel generalized, body tone will feel more, more or less at ease, more clear, things will look clearer, things will look more interesting or less threatening, it'll be pleasurable to look around. Now that grows. In our sessions, the idea is to try to grow this state, not more than you can, that's going to get that misattunement that we were talking about before. But yeah, we're trying to like kind of linger into that state just a little bit more. We're actually trying to be biofeedback machines in a way. I got to tell it that way at some point. It's like you are trying to train that or um, tune actually is part of the literature would point toward trying to tune that system into use by using it. This dropping into the present moment, looking around orientation it can be also the response or the result of 
the completion process that I was just kind of cheerleading a moment ago. And it can also come from just being in a safe enough environment with you as the practitioner, with the right kind of rhythm and the intervention being at the place and space and pace that takes what might otherwise be felt and seen to be a threatening situation, contact with traumatic memories as an example, into instead a safe environment where, you know, I don't know, maybe even people laugh. I remember being over in Japan a couple years ago with my then Swedian colleague, Angela Mesternea from Sao Paulo, Brazil. We were assisting with Stephen Hoskinson and we were providing sessions and consultations. We did a lot of these at a time. You do that sometimes when you do the trainings. You do a lot of this, particularly when you work internationally and help internationally. Well, we worked there for six days, seeing people in the training space, as you've seen before. And I noted, it was, it, it really shook me, shocked me, and I loved it, um, that every single session Every single consultation that came out of through the wall in the training facility from Angela's work had like laughter in it. And it wasn't just her laughter. You know, you, you could be cheap and just trying to get ventral vagal engagement. You could be laughing. But if you are able to provide this environment of enhanced neuroception of safety you should see increased orientation and increased engagement, increased social engagement, and even increased play, or at least the potential for it. And there's one more way that orientation shows up in this way, coming into the moment, and it's because you guys practice it. You guys practice it, and they see the value. They feel the value. It becomes easier for you to invite them to it. You two linger in it longer, maybe even make it a practice and an invite that they end up taking to their neighbors, that they, they really take on, that they share with other people. It becomes like a thing. Everybody meets in the park like an orientation group. It's like Tuesdays and Saturdays, 2 p.m. and 10 a.m. Meet in the park, walk around the park for two hours and look at things together. Be like an orientation group. Actually, two courageous folks from Tucson have done that. One person there is still taking it on. I like that. Makes me think about my longtime wish of an orientation bench movement. All across the world, people would start erecting orientation benches, like at the edge of overlooks and interesting places to sit in the city. And we'd, we'd kind of develop this culture of people come out at interesting times of the day and sit and orient together as just a reclaiming of a long forgotten mammalian expectation. What a pleasure to spend more time seeing this beautiful world with more people. The myelinator would have nothing on that. Now, of course, those of you that have studied with Stephen Hoskinson would recognize the doing orientation talked about above as being like a phase two kind of directive, you know, whether it comes from the client or from the practitioner. And then on the completion of self-protective or just like, oh, it's just naturally happening here. You know, probably see that more like phase three kind of stuff, which is which is all organic intelligence style language and works for me. So for us here, what I ask us to remember is that orientation is multiple different kinds of things in our sessions and our invitations are different for different people along the resiliency spectrum and in relationship with their idiosyncrasies of responding to our requests 
and the fluidity of our request, but also the appropriateness of our request for which of these kinds of things, which orientation. Orientation? Or is it orientation? Or is it, oh, that's orientation. I needed to lay all of those out before I went ahead and shared with you what I do. Why not just tell you what I do when I'm inviting orientation? Because that's the only thing that I truly know. I've been asked to do that. I'm happy to do that. I'll be back right after a message from our sponsors to do that. Do you keep getting whacked by life? Soccer balls and other flying objects come out of nowhere. Your bills suddenly swamp your existence. Your boss caught you off guard again asking if you could work this Saturday. Maybe you need more orientation. If that's true, you probably need more myelin too. You see, the myelin on the outside of the nerves running between your nucleus ambiguous, your heart and lungs, and a few other upper body visceral organs like your glossal pharyngeal area, as well as muscles responsible for your ability to smoothly orient to new stimuli by turning your head and neck, hearing novel sounds in the environment, heck, even reading the face and vocal qualities of your conniving boss. All of those are mediated by the ventral vagal complex, which is aided or impeded by sufficient myelination. It's as simple as that. The more myelin, the more oriented you can be. Don't keep getting hit by things coming out of the blue. Have some warning first. Get more oriented. Get more myelin. Get the myelinator. Now available. www.liberationispossible.org backslash myelinator. That's M-Y-E-L-I-N-A-T-O-R. Myelinator. Totally rebranded, trademarked, copyrighted, age-old technology. The Myelinator. Patent pending. Okay, we'll start moving into invitations. And for those of you who needed to realize that this is a long episode, you've already figured out that, yes, this is. This is a longer episode. That's just the way it's going to be. On our way to invitations... We've considered a bunch of background considerations. You can use those to kind of look at, pick apart, add to, remove from your way of inviting people into orientation. And everything else in here, you can leave on the recording. Anything that's helpful, take it with you. And as I go into this next little bit on my kind of patter, as I talked about in episode 19 on patter in sessions. Before I go into that finally here, I should say, I don't think my patter anymore is how Stephen Hoskinson and certainly not how Peter Levine invite orientation. But I will certainly say, as it should really, really be clear, they've really influenced how I do this. And I've tried to learn everything I possibly could from them as I suggested in episode 10 on stealing the technique, waza unusumu. So, when I'm meeting with a client for the first time, and I'm trying to carry as a anticipated beginning place, I go toward orientation. As I encounter a new person, I'm immediately doing a kind of assessment. I'm watching to see how oriented they are. I'm watching to see what amount of orientation is present here. If in that strange, unusual way that sometimes happens, or because somebody has done 
a lot of work and I suddenly get to work with them, when I meet a client at the beginning and find that they have kind of pretty much everything in place for the ideal session, like in episode 73 and getting to know clients quickly, there's a bunch of qualities I'm looking for. And if they're present, orientation is going to be one of them, then I don't have to spend a whole lot of time setting things up. I'll feel pretty comfortable in myself just jumping right in and naturally dropping into things. And in that case, leaning on available pendulation to reinforce its kind of value and maybe, maybe pausing as we go and kind of like pointing out the structure of things. But probably if that ideal session potential lands in my office, people are presenting a lot of orientation and such, I kind of probably just move in to doing our whatever. And as orientation shows up, I'll kind of lean into it, add a little bit of interest to it, eventually make it a thing. If the magic session isn't going to happen, then I, I formalize the whole orientation to orientation thing. I didn't used to. That wasn't how I was taught. I think I was, you know, in a really nice opportunity to study with Stephen Hoskinson in like early 2004, 2005, 2006. And, and there wasn't much structure to how I was taught to do it then. I was taught to kind of join in with the client and try to find the place that I could lean into their organic interest in orientation and just increase that over time and pay less attention to the things that were disorienting. That, that requires a whole lot of sensitivity and a whole lot of challenge for people who are really disorganized and not orienting very much. Yet, it was fantastic learning ground because it required me to kind of get clear on all these variable considerations like we were talking about earlier in this episode. Well... That's cool. I did that. I really enjoyed that. I could do that again. I will do that on any given day if I if it comes to that. Or if I'm only going to meet somebody one time, maybe I'll just jump right in there and start swimming and everything. But if I'm if I'm entering into a contract to do work with people, like we're going to do sessions, a session maybe, but probably if it's a session in my work, I'm talking with people about choice points and choice like architecture in their lives on where they can minimize their stress response or enhance their ability to kind of use the self-care or the access to more positive resources that they have already at, at hand. That's probably what I'm doing if I'm just meeting with somebody one time rather than try to do some ideal magic session. Unless, like I say, it just walks in my door. With everybody that I have a contract or we're going to do stuff with, my personal thing now and has been for since 2008 or so is to actually take people through a formal introduction that I do to orientation. You know, I first do all the basics in establishing the contract, like making sure that we're supposed to be working together, supposed to be in the same room. I listen to their complaint and what they're seeking help and therapy for a guidance assistance with and I make sure that I can hear something that fits my scope of practice which is kind of physiologically based somatic body work you know somatic education can I help your 
physiology or body transition between different phases of experience better so that you feel like your organism works better rather than feeling like it's in pain all the time. And so I'm listening. Does the symptom complaint that I'm hearing express some kind of overexcitation of the various different subsystems of the autonomic nervous system that we talk about as being problematic, like excessive fight response or flight response, anxiety or or aggression or tension or hypertension or just inability to let down at the end of the day or really just a kind of ready-to-go-off frustration at the next little thing that might not go my way, which is going to happen all the time, all the days, in which case I'm constantly going off. Could could I help somebody like deactivate that or chill that out or have less of that? I think I probably could. I can listen. I can listen for where do I hear the nervous system part of this that gives me a handle, and that's part of my pattern to listen for that. In my contracting, I hear that stuff back. I, you know, get it across that I have something to say about what's going on that might be valid to establish this thing that says, yeah, I hear what you're saying and it kind of makes me think like this. And then does that make sense? And if I can name something, there's a little trick in there. If I can name something, David DeRosenroll talks well about this. If you can name something in there that they haven't named before, if they haven't mentioned before, David DeRosenroll is a faculty up in Canada, if you don't know that. Uh, if you can name something that they haven't, they haven't really named, but you can, you can kind of predict part of the problem, they'll, they'll kind of be impressed, you know, to, to tell you the truth. It's a way to hook their attention and say, hey, this might be valid for you. In which case, we get a little contract together that says, yeah, we're going to do work together. And then rather than follow the idea that we're going to fix those things, I then make a suggestion that we take like a sideways route toward changing, helping those kinds of things to change. And the intention behind that is that I want to save time and money. I'm trying to save this person time and money. I'm trying to get our initial conditions, our very first contacts with various different skills and instructions and requests that we're going to be using over and over and over again in future sessions. No matter if it's like three more sessions or 10 or 20 or two years, if I'm, if I'm in here to kind of affect the completion of the stress response kind of stuff that I'm actually centrally after in my SE work, then I'm, I'm going to be using orientation all the time. I'm going to use it as that structure. I'm going to use it as that deactivation model. I'm going to use it as a place to give more space between activation cycles. I'm going to use it as a way to stimulate the ventral vagal complex. I'm going to use it as a way to stimulate or simulate the sense of pendulation and back and forthness between my client and myself. I'm going to Use it as the thing that eventually helps us mark, are things getting clearer? Are we going in the right direction? So I just, I just kind of get a contract together that says, we should be working together. We're going to work together. There's a reason for us to work together. You're in these, this situation that you want to change. I'm with you on wanting to help you change it and thinking that I've got some purview 
for thinking that I could, that it's legitimate. We've looked into why that would be. And then now that we've got that together, rather than going straight into harm, straight into the challenge of all those things that haven't already changed for you yet, haven't already changed for you yet, and that's why you're coming. That's why you're coming, because they haven't already changed, and you're looking for something to help them change. Well, for me to be able to help you do that, that's how I'm thinking, and that's maybe what I'm saying, I'm, I'm needing to have us have a shared language, some shared skills, and in the doing element of orientation, which is going to help give so much structure to my sessions and to help prime the ventral vagal complex for getting more of itself, et cetera, et cetera, all those reasons we were looking at before, I just kind of want to say, and I do, I do almost, almost exclusively. If it's not going to be an ideal session, a magic session, a like, oh, look, just feel that and let that happen and let it pendulate and let it move through and look at how it was all ready to go. And I just happen to be the lucky one who gets to be here with you doing your organic, intelligent thing. In that case that it's not that, which is everything else for me, everybody else for me, no matter how much relative orientation they have, I actually take the time to establish a contract to develop a shared language that says, well, I wonder if you'd be willing to take a moment or a little bit of time with me to try out something, to do a little something, to get a little shared skills, a little knowledge, a little shared language together. I choose all of those phrases somewhat to keep it fresh for me and somewhat to mix it up for the right way and the right person. Sometimes it's just very direct. I wonder if you'd be willing to do some little experiments with me to help get things moving in the right direction. Okay, well, it sounds like we've got these things that we're going to be working on together. And as we go along here, I know that I'm going to be able to help us more if you and I have a shared language and a shared set of skills that help us lean in the right direction so that when we come across things that we're trying to help be different, and that's kind of what I hear you say, is that like things need to become different. You don't want them to stay the same. It just keeps happening or you're bothered by the thing being the same. And so we're going to have to do things differently in some way. And I'd like us, in fact, I think it'd be the best use of your time or the best use of your money or whatever. There's all kinds of different ways. I got, uh, there's one that it's like, well, you know, um, I could tell you about how this scientist fella that I think about who helped to start all of this, this guy, Peter Levine, he's like this kind of ethologist, scientist fellow who really looked at animals and animals in the wild and how when animals in the wild encounter stresses, and that's kind of like what you and I are talking about here. It's like we're talking about these dangers, these stressors, these stress things, you know. Um, as as we encounter those, as, as animals encounter dangers, they have this very basic response to look and turn and kind of look at the danger, especially mammals, you know. It's like you and I do this all the time. We hear a loud sound. We're walking across the park. We're walking with a friend. We're looking around at the world. We're talking about the flowers. If we hear a loud sound, we're going to stop our conversation. We're going to stop looking at the flowers. We're going to stop our free attention 
And we're going to turn and we're going to look at that sound. Like, what is that? Is that dangerous to me? And that turning, that looking, that's a, actually, it turns out to be a big, big deal inside of us. And there's this whole like thing about our head and our neck turning to look at things. And it turns out that that's like a piece of us. That's a, like a part of our behavior that you and I need to, um, at the very beginning of our work together, at the very beginning of our work together, we need to kind of put into motion recovering the allowance for that motion to happen, that movement to happen. Now, that is the most structured way I've ever imagined saying it. And all the way over to what I normally do is is say, hey, well, you know, I wonder if we could do some shared skills together. We could just kind of learn some things in this office that I do with people that will help it help you and I be successful when we start kind of getting a little bit closer to the things that you came here to work on. And then we can just kind of get things moving in the right direction easier and faster. You up for that? Does that seem like something we could do together? Okay, well, if so, then what I'll tell you is the first parts of this, the first parts of this are going, could feel, they're going to, they could feel, they might feel, these could feel really basic or really banal, or this could feel really silly, or this could feel really stupid. This could feel super, super stupid. You see all those variables in there? Like I'm trying to find, yeah, the one or one or two or three that help to say to this person, I hear how well or how not well this fits with you. I'm trying to find the titration that makes this request acceptable and something that they'll participate with. And I'm looking for that before, in fact, I say it. And if I can't find it before I say it, then I'm looking to adjust after I've tried it once, as per episode 87. With that mitigation of asking for this I, at some kind of level that essentially deprecates it. You know, here's the thing about what I'm trying to do there, is I'm trying to make sure that I don't put profundity into this. I'm trying to make sure that I don't try to get something really valuable right at the beginning. It's not going to feel valuable. It's it, You and I, we know that orientation is key. It's valuable. It's part and parcel to our work and success in our work. And we, we know that, but we have to hold that back. Your, your clients don't know that. Not when you're first introducing this. It's, it feels like a waste of time. It feels like an interruption. Anywhere along the spectrum, you can have, well, okay, it's like, I trust you. Could be, well, I don't trust you, but I'll do it. Could be, like, are you serious? I have all these major problems and you're trying to take me down this side road, which I should say, if I'm going to have too much friction there, no, I'm not going to go down that side road. I'm going to, in my case, my work, I'm going to join up with the problem state and go down into the vortexes and swim by using the formula and try to like help pendulation as best as I can while still working my way toward more orientation. But if I can get us over into this contract, there's my wording, there's my lining. I'm like, well, I wonder if you'd be willing to try out a silly little experiment. It's kind of like a, a little thing that we'll do where we'll learn a few things as we go along and we'll get things moving in the right direction. Yeah, okay, well, good for that. Okay, well, the first one, like I say, it's going to be kind of silly, kind of basic. 
and um, maybe even maybe even just like ridiculous. But what I ask is that you and I we just look around the room together. We look around the room together and we just let ourselves see things. And now, like I said, it's going to be kind of silly, right? But it's like we let ourselves see things and then we just tell each other some things that we see. Like I'll just I'll just tell you three things that I see and then you tell me three things that you can see. And now these these don't have to be special. They don't have to be profound. Like you don't have to like them or not like them. You just, you know, I'll just tell you three things I see. Like I can see... Um, I'll take the easy ones first. Like I can see that the wall over there is is yellow and I can see that there's that large window there and I can see that the floor is like kind of this mottled yellow and and speckly gray kind of color. Yeah, like any three things that you can see. They, like I say, they don't have to be special. They don't have to be profound. Just any three things you can see. Like in episode 90 on comedy improv games, there's a kind of process here that I'm trying to enter into with complete clarity right at the beginning so that I can start cutting back the phrase. So when I first do that initial introduction, even though it can feel pretty pedantic and I do really adjust it for somebody who needs a whole lot more intervention, I'll speak a lot longer, I'll call the attention a lot more, I'll try to be more mitigated about how much I ask for. Maybe we'll just ask one thing back and forth. I can see this. Can you see that? We can do this back and forth. At that first place that I'm starting, I make it as clear as I can, just like I'm going to build up toward cutting back the phrase, like in copy-paste, as we talked about in episode 90, or as, as in the guide to the SE language. So at this first round of orientation... I look around, I name three simple things. Client has some sense of what we're doing. It's pretty structured. It's very, very, very basic. And it's been named as basic so as to match the relative ire of the client who would have some any of their relative response to the amount of ire. Some people would just be like, oh, this is a silly little thing we're just going to do for a moment because it's not going to be a big deal for them. Other people would just be like, I'm sorry we have to do this. This is a good idea. And and that's a line in here actually is to be able to say, you know, there's a bunch of science behind all of this that we could we could go into or we could just we could go ahead and just experiment with it a little bit and kind of build this up as we go, if that works out for you okay. In which case we're looking to get permission to invest in the process rather than sit there and explain the process the whole time. After the first round, my most typical thing is to repeat back what they've just said. So they say, well, I see that the sign there says exit, and I see that there's a door there, and I, I see the, the little doll on the counter. And I repeat back, probably with clarity, some amount of those responses, like all of them or some amount of them, whatever. But, but I'm getting the feedback going there that I hear what you're saying and I feed you back pretty much what you say to me. So, right, you see the door and you see the the doll. Uh-huh, cool. Right, so it's just like that. It's just like that. So, like, I'll just say a few things that I can see. You just say a few things that you can see and we'll just go back and forth a few times here, right? Like, this is just this thing that we call orientation and it's actually, while it'll change and how we'll go about it, 
and, and how it shows up and everything, it'll change. This is a way for us to just get to know it. And, and we'll just call it what it is. It's called orientation. And it's just like this for now. It's like, I'll just tell you a few more things that I can see. And then you tell me a few more things that you can see. It's like, uh, maybe this time I'll just make it a little bit, you know, a little harder this time, whatever. I'll like something with more details. Like I can see the, the picture frame there. I can see the black picture frame and the white box inside the frame. And I can see the, the stand there for the light and the little nubbin on the stand. And I can see the stuffed animal over there, the owl with the, um, with the yellow, yellow in the eyes. Yeah, I can see that too. So like I say, anything that you can notice, details, whatever, up to you. I'm watching. How easy is this for them? Do, you know, are they able to d- join in that? Do I have to make it even more structured? Do I have to pull it down to just one thing at a time? Do we have to get down to constrained questions? Can you see this? Can you see that? Oh, you can, oh, you can. How interesting you have to make it, how interesting it can be for them on its own, all is determined, as we were talking about before. And the variable nature of my kind of invitation is more or less structured around that place where my goal is to go back and forth three, four times where I'm naming some things that I can see, they're naming some things that they can see around the third or the fourth time. I don't have to keep naming things that I can see because they already, they're already doing it, in which case I start to back off my intervention, my doing, because they don't need me to do as much. I can give them a little bit more autonomy. And usually about the third or fourth round, of successful, like, oh, it's easier, it, you know, they can respond, they can look around, they can pull out differentiated pieces. Yeah, when it works that way, then I can move on and start to move into a little bit more allowance rather than telling us to look around and name three things. I could be like, well, maybe we just take this another step further as we're going along here. We just like, um, this time, maybe as we let our eyes start to look around, we just, maybe even like play with the idea just as an idea to let our eyes go where they want to go and let them just kind of see what they end up wanting to see. You know, maybe they go to shadows or maybe they go to lighter things or kind of shapes or colors or corners or angles or whatever. Let's just, um, let's just play with like now letting our eyes just wander a little bit more on their own. And you see, I'm trying to make this progressive. I'm trying to make it become more interesting over time. I'm trying to make us or give us the opportunity to linger a little bit longer with each like kind of reorientation. I'm also trying to set up a little bit of the pattern of looking around, kind of coming inside to attention and then looking around again. So that now when we start to look around, the next part of the conversation is going to be more around the perception of what you end up looking at. So like, how about this time when you let your eyes kind of wander on their own like that, when you just kind of let your eyes go wherever they want to go, can I ask, like, um, what do they end up getting attracted to? Like, where do you end up going? What do you end up seeing? And here, you know, it's like I could have an open question like that, or I could have a menued question. Does it, does it go more towards shadows or more toward, you know, brighter things or, can you say, or could have like a constrained question. It's like, yeah, as you let yourself look around like that, do you, 
Do you look at things close by or do you look at things further away? Do you look at things on this side of the room or do you look at things on that side of the room? All of these different variable questions so as to bring a little bit more ease of success in answering your question around this thing, which even now might be kind of like, well, that was a new step kind of in the patterns game from episode 90. You know, we're building up a pattern and we're trying to go from one successful step to the next and we're trying to link those together. And yet each new step, we might need to look at how big the titration needs to be. So we might need to drop a constrained question or a minute question or get to go to an open question as we develop over time, which has this impact or effect of helping people feel like you're progressing, which helps us to kind of like take a little turn over to the red vortex of all of this, that there are places as you're progressing through this that could get a little wobbly. I mean, they don't if you, well, they can't. Okay, let's just say that they can. Like one is that you could ask people to look around and name three things that you can see. You name three things and they just look around and say, I don't know. At that place, you suddenly have a diagnostic measurement. Oh, this is a more globalized system. This is a less differentiated system. I need to make this easier. I need to pull down my request along the resiliency spectrum. There is less orientation available here. I need to maybe even get up and hand things back and forth. We, we could go all the way down to where we're just, we're coloring together just so we can have something to look at. Or in my office, I used to have picture books of like different landscape settings and such so we could look at things together just to like do something to make orientation happen. So somewhere along the spectrum is this place where you're asking people, can you look around? And they're saying, yes, but just below that, they're saying, no. And when they're saying no, you're trying to adjust to get it to where they can say yes. Another place that can get tricky in here is if you're asking people to spend an extended period of time learning the orientation pattern that you are then going to execute as part of your regular structure in your sessions, at least if you're following this model. And it's a, it could be it could take time. It could take five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 sessions, six months. Done it for six months at one time. Really necessary. There was so much disorientation. We couldn't move on until we established that we were here and we could get out of what was going on. So we had to spend more time trying to get here. Well, this is an extended period of time trying to get through this thing that somebody might already want to get through. If it doesn't feel like it has some kind of increasing significance, then it can feel like an increasing waste of time. So that if you end up doing multiple rounds or a whole lot of time of looking around again, without giving the sense that we're increasing the value of this, then it can feel like it's increasing stupidity or you know, kind of a waste of money. And the way that I was describing before, and you can kind of hear me doing that, is by more or less each round trying to increase the request just a little bit. Like, oh, you know, we'll go from like the easy ones to maybe things with a little bit more detail. Or, all oh, right, well, maybe this time, rather than continuing to tell each other what we see, 
I'll just um, I'll just suggest that we take this one step further. We just kind of like keep going here. We're doing really good. So if we just keep going, and this time I'll just suggest that we just kind of let our eyes go wherever they want to go. Each of these kind of rounds might want to have some notion that we're progressing, like the, the last round was successful, let's move on. And of course, there's a trick there that not all the time is the last round successful. And the idea here is that you're going to establish orientation before you go on. So there's a sequence that I'm actually leading into here that takes all the way through to felt sense tracking experiences and whatnot. And that's where I'm headed, of course, with all of this initial conditions with orientation. And I don't want to progress down that sequence until I have sufficient orientation and sufficient ability to return to orientation. In which case, sometimes you have to pull in tricky language to give the sense that we're still advancing, even though really what you might be doing is either keeping things at the same request, the same titration, or in fact backing it off and trying to get to a titration, a level of request that you can actually have their active participation with. Well, around the third, fourth, fifth orientation and success with like, can see things, can name things, can identify things, accommodating the fact that sometimes it's going to not be successful, so it needs to really be reinforced and lingered longer and maybe even explained why we're having to do this or all kinds of other gift of gab conversation to try to make this okay. There might be all kinds of other ways to slow down the attempt to move into the content. Short of all that, when things are working, third, fourth, fifth, back and forth, you don't, it gets old to do it for more. But there's other reasons to keep the structure of it going. So I was saying that I'm kind of headed into a sequence here. In fact, this is the sequence that I share in my workshop, Where to Start. But that as I'm introducing orientation, I now am just going to add in like simulated pendulation kind of stuff, right? So what Stephen Hoskinson might nowadays call like half sandwich, I think, or veggie sandwich, I think I've heard. In the past, it always used to be called simulated pendulation i think of it as out in and out the kind of basic kind of guy myself i think of it as out in out like taking the attention out orientation taking the attention in kind of vortex process if somebody's coming for a distressing kind of thing i'm assuming we're in contact with the vortex stuff if we're inside for now whether that's pendulated or not is a question and then there's out again reorientation that's the pattern of the stress response that i I want to reestablish the movement through the successful movement into the trauma vortex stress response stuff and back to orientation. So when I'm introducing orientation to people and I have this back and forth, I see this, you see that, I see this, you see that. Oh, okay, how about this time? What do you see this time? We don't, I don't have to tell you anymore. It's like, it's just a waste of our time. So how about you? Like, what do you notice now? This is not a Rorschach test. Got to make sure it's not a Rorschach test. Okay, how about this time? What we'll do is we'll just name that as orientation. And we'll, we'll just take this a little further now. We'll just make it a little bit more complex. Not too much, but we'll, we'll just take it one step at a time. This time, I'm going to turn, I'm going to suggest that we take that same idea. We're just going to let our eyes go wherever they want to go. This time, we'll just turn our attention 
inside ourselves and we'll just feel what we notice inside ourselves. Anything doesn't have to be special, doesn't have to be profound. You don't have to like it or not like it. We'll just name maybe three things or so that we can feel. And then uh, actually we'll, we'll just bring our attention back out again. So for instance, I'll just, I'll just say like, I can feel, I can feel the, the back of my chair as my back rests against the chair. And I can feel the, um, the weight of my leg as my leg crosses over my other leg here. And I can also feel the vibration in my throat, my chest here as I, as I speak. Like I say, three things, they don't have to be special. You don't have to like them or not like them. And now I'll tell you, listener here, it's like, that's, that's my first turn into the body. It's not to, in my preference, just to enter in, identify something and get back out again. And it fits for me on the backside of this orientation pattern, because I'm using the structure that I just established as three things. And that worked there. And now I use the same thing in contacting the internal experience. Don't have to like it. Don't have to not like it. I'm just trying to name three things. And you'll hear how I started that. I just asked, well, I kind of suggested in my own experience, things that are at the surface. My back, my legs, the clothing. And then I kind of ended my third thing with a slightly more visceral feeling, the vibration in my throat. That pattern, you know, I usually look for an authentic thing, but I'm trying to move this on. They don't need to know what I feel. What they need is some introduction for what they're supposed to say in response to my question, name three things that you can notice. And that's exactly what happens. People respond usually, almost always, with a reflection of three things that they can notice that are probably pretty peripheral, which is how I'd like to enter into things. That's how I was always taught to do it. Like, sure, enter into the periphery and then kind of get more comfortable and you can decide, should we try to go deeper or not? Well, They name out three things that they can feel, and then it's just to return to orientation, for me at least, in this pattern that I'm sharing. I'm like, right, so you notice the X and the Y and the Z, and then um, as you notice those, maybe we'll just take another look around, and for example, I can see out the window there, I can see the branches swaying, and I can see the color in the sky, and I see the lamp there at the corner. Any, Any three things that you can see now. And now I'm just pulling the attention out into orientation. And that's a first round of out, in, and out. Usually I use a structure to start with. It sounds horrible to say that, but I do. Where I use three things out, three things in, three things out, I adjust that. Sometimes it's one thing. Sometimes it's not naming anything. It's how I talk about it. That's the place that I can usually catch most people at a place that they can do it. Once they can do that, I can quickly let go of that or I can realize I need to make this request a little bit smaller. And from there, I'm just going to do the same thing that I did before with the rounds of orientation where I'm doing a little bit and they're doing a little bit and I'm doing a little bit and they're doing a little bit and then I'm doing less and then they're doing more and then I'm doing not much at all, but just kind of going along and suggesting the next slightly more complicated step. And we just do a couple rounds of the same thing, like a couple things we can talk about seeing outside of ourselves, 
couple of things we can notice inside. When we go in, I usually kind of suggest that the next round might become more complicated, like I was suggesting before. So I'm like, right, so this time as we go in, maybe just noticing like, um, I don't know, maybe like this time I guess I can feel things a little bit deeper inside, like I can feel um, my belly. It's a little, I guess it's a little heavy. Um, I can feel my hips in the chair and my weight coming down like into my low back. Um, and I guess I can feel just a tiny little bit of pulsing if I tune in. I can feel just a tiny little bit of pulsing going on. And uh, like I say, you don't have to necessarily like these. We won't stay long. You know, it's just kind of like a in and out again. But you just like notice this time. Uh, if you just take your attention just a little bit deeper, what do you notice this time? And there, of course, you know, you're going to mitigate and adjust for how much support or how much whatever attention to it that they need in order to be successful with that request and then get out again. And I'm just kind of building up this pattern of like, do a little bit more, linger a bit longer, be more successful or be more complicated at each round of success. And we go back and forth a bit there. Now, along in my pattern, I'm getting to about the third or fifth, third to fifth, out in, out, out in, out, out in, out. Around the third or fourth or fifth back in, I'm usually asking for a comparison between how things felt inside before and how things feel now. And that's all based on having stimulated the ventral vagal complex out in, out, out in, out a whole bunch of times, having kind of stimulated the sense of change of like kind of the opportunity for differences, a kind of pendulation kind of thing, and having in this amount of time kept people away from their content, which isn't an ultimate goal, but it is a helpful, necessary initial condition for me while I'm doing this. And by the third, fourth, fifth turn inside to the felt experience, I anticipate, and usually I try to perceive if this is going to be the truth before I ask the question so that I don't kind of ask the question and find out that it's not that way. But <laughs> I try to perceive that they are getting that little benefit that we've talked about before in this session, in this episode, about the ventral vagal complex kind of helping to settle things somehow. So that on the third, fourth, or fifth entree in, I, I might say, how about this time, if we go inside this time, and we just like make this one step more sophisticated, and we just do a little comparison between th how things felt before and how things feel now. Like when you go inside this time, do things feel maybe like they're exactly the same as before, or do they feel perhaps different in some way? And here I'm asking for a very basic differentiation qualification thing of are things the same or are they different? And now I'm going to start to develop the kind of skill of identifying differences, which I'm going to use later as start to guide people into pendulation. Coming back from that to orientation is now part of establishing that structure of going into the stress response and then coming back out into orientation that we were talking about at the beginning of this episode. So that 
once I say, well, you know, what do you notice inside now? And they give back a couple things that they notice. I need to say, right, you notice those things there now. And that's all we'll do. We'll just notice those for now. And we'll notice it's the same. We'll notice it's different. Perhaps we get to that place. And then we'll just bring our eyes back out again and take another look around. As we're establishing that rhythm of feeling inside for an amount of time, which I'm going to with successful rounds to the interior experience, going to be lingering into and making them longer as they go along here. But I'm definitely picking up the at first initial time of things being noticed as different and bringing the attention back out. Or in fact, every once in a while, things can feel the same or even less comfortable. But that's another thing altogether, which we could always say, right, you notice it being different. Even though it's more, you're able to notice it being different. That's cool. We're going to use that skill later. Your ability to notice differences is going to be key here. Okay, let's get back to this. Your reorientation thing now has a, hmm, all of this, all of this has a need to continually have the feeling of progression. Like the client had, in my experience, People don't like to hear you say the same phrases over and over again. They don't like to hear you say, let's take another look around the room now. They don't want to hear you say the same thing, the same line, the same exact words over and over. And they don't even want to hear the same meaning expressed in different ways if they already know the meaning and it could be expressed in a shorter phrase or period of time. And that's why I really advocate cutting back the phrase where from the beginning here, you've established with clarity, let's take a look around, let your eyes go wherever they want to go. Let your eyes see whatever they want to see. You don't have to like it or not like it. Just let your eyes see anything they want to see. And you just kind of like notice what it is that your eyes end up looking at. You make this whole big long phrase that then each time you're re-inviting back to orientation, well, maybe we just take a look around the room again this time. And just like we were doing before, we just let our eyes just kind of go wherever they want to go. And then the next time, right, so you notice that and that and that. You notice X, Y, and Z. You notice your chest. You notice your shoulders. You notice your hips. Right. You notice those things. And then as you look around the room now, how do things look now? I find it incredibly important to cut back the phrase that as people become successful with your language and respond accurately to your request, that the next time you make that request, you you give them a little bit more credit for knowing what you mean. And you pull back some of what you say about it so that everybody gets the feeling like we're in this together and we're doing this together. When cutting back the phrase from reorientation, you are probably, and my, my model for this always had this, but you know, all of it's just like a natural thing. You really do this as you tell people to let their eyes go wherever they want to go. You want to let your eyes go where they want to go too. You don't want to look at somebody and say, okay, now let your eyes go where they want to go. Just wherever your eyes want to go, just like, um, just let your eyes go free. Like as if they're their own animal and just totally free, no cages, no limits. You can, you can look anywhere you want to look. 
if you keep staring at the person, no matter all of the big words or insistence for freedom that you give, if you're staring at somebody, they're not going to let their eyes go free. You're trying to model this. So if you say, well, let your eyes go wherever they want to go, tell me a few things you can see, I'll tell you a few things I can see. You want to let your own head and neck look around while you do that. Well, on the reorientation side of these out-in-out sequences, it's just really important that when you're reorienting, you let your eyes look around. They're going to follow you with that. That's part of the notion of success is that you see them let their head and neck look around. That's when you know, oh, I can keep going here. I can keep progressing here. We don't have to reinforce this level. We can make the next level more sophisticated. We can ask for more. With cutting back the phrase, you can eventually cut back the phrase to the point where at the right feeling time of the amount of time that's been internally experienced, you can simply start to look around again and people will take that as the cue, oh, just let your eyes look around again. Maybe there's an intermediary step usually of like, let your eyes go wherever they want to go. Oh, how about now? How's the room look now? Oh, maybe you just let your eyes... All right, and then our eyes, so each of these is like a next time of saying, let your eyes go where they want to go, but you don't have to say the whole phrase. It's like, right, and eyes, or, oh yeah, and now we just, and that's as that, as we say, oh, and now we just, we actually kind of like move our head with it as though, and now we just turn our head and let our eyes go wherever they want to go is being said simply by saying, oh, and now we just and we actually physically turn our head. And eventually, what I'm looking for when I'm doing this is for the client to start doing that pattern on their own. That when we go in, and you know, we're going to be progressing down this little sequence that I do, and as we go in, I'll be doing some, maybe some stimulation kind of things to give something to track so that we can start to not only identify things and identify things changing over time so that we get a dig of differences, but now we're going to like do some kind of activity like a voo sound or some kind of stimulus to have something to track the rise and fall of and the change of on the backside of that rise and fall is a natural place to reorient. And what I'm hoping for is that there's a a kind of flow here that goes from we don't know what we're doing to we're looking around doing this silly thing. We're looking around and letting it become a little bit more just the thing we do. Now we're adding in going in and coming back out to look around. Now we're going back in and we're staying a little bit longer and coming back out. So now we're truly establishing that that's going to be the pattern. We're going to be inside of our experience, and then we're going to come out of that and reorient and reestablish our contact with what we can see in the room. And as we do that, we have to talk about it less so that it's now just kind of maybe something that's happening without even necessarily sharing what we see anymore. We're just looking around. We've cut back the phrase and all the different little language things, so now we're just doing it. And then as we go through the sequence and we start stimulating self-protective responses, the idea is that it'll just be there to, um, it'll be primed and ready to be executed as a, you know, oh, I just 
Now I just really let my head and neck go wherever they want to go. And it's just kind of a sequence. Starting from a very structured place, admittedly, a little, little less organic than I would imagine that I'd want. But I start there and build up the shared language, moving further and further into allowing it to happen more and more on its own with less and less need to invite it to do one thing or another because it's more and more the pattern of what we do in these sessions. Yeah, at least that's that's what I do. Yep, for about 99% of the people that I'm going to work with, I've done that since 2008. Just, okay, we're in, we're in a thing together here. We're going to do this together. Um, let's learn how I do things. There's some reason that you're in here with me. Let's follow this pattern. And I should say, I did not lean on it that way at the beginning. I leaned on Peter Levine and the science behind it, as I described in episode 19 on pattern sessions, like with the three-door metaphor. When I talk in that episode about choosing door number one, where I lead people through a series of exercises, this is that series of exercises. Nowadays, I just do it for everybody. And for anybody who doesn't need it, because their ventral vagal system is really there, or like we could almost just go through the process without pre-establishing these invitations into orientation, all of that, or not just invitations. At this point, it's like a instructional set. Like we're going to learn how to do this so that we can learn how to let this happen over time more and more of its own. That's my, that's my way of going about this, at least with that, when I did not have the authority to say, this is what I do in my office, I would say things like, these are exercises and experiments that the scientist fellow, Peter Levine, who kind of helped us understand how the stress response works in the nervous system better than we understood before. It's like he's kind of helped us, helped us get things going in the right direction. And other folks have come in and added stuff to that. And, and I can I can kind of guide us through those so that you and I can have a shared language with this. In all that pattern above, all that which we've been talking about forever here, there's an assessment for me that says, this is going to work with such ease that this person can proceed without a pattern in place, or I'm taking this route that establishes we know what we're doing in here. I don't know if that's what you need to do, but you can see how inside of my pattern, I'm building up from something that is unknown and meant to be, made to be acceptable and building up its reference so that it finds a immediate and permanent place in my sessions that I can at any point allow the pendulum to swing back and forth, and at the right time, the person is going to have the sense of their own, it's time to reorient. And if I need to direct that earlier, we're going to have a completely shared language that I might at any point say, right, okay, well, maybe just after that tiny little change right there, maybe I'm going to take that as our opportunity to just do that thing, and we'll just... Um, maybe we'll come back out here and we'll start to look around again and just kind of see how the world is around us now, how, how we're doing out here now, how things look now. Having that shared language just helps, 
helps my sessions feel more efficient, to be honest, and helps me to feel like I'm working, my clients and I are working together. I invest in that very early on, if at all possible. This is a good place to say that there's a very good reorientation invitation that is a menu that allows people to kind of give a marker of how their orientation is doing. So we were talking before about tracking people's quality of orientation over time, anticipating that we hope anticipate things becoming more oriented. Yeah. So there's a menu that could be on the reorientation side, right? So just as you kind of notice that, you know, whatever it was, you notice that we'll just uh, maybe do that thing again where we'll start to look around. Maybe I can ask, how do things look now? Um, are they more on the clear side or on the blurry side or seem like darker or lighter or more normal? Or what would you say? How do things look? And you can see the menu of that, giving some options, the range of qualities in there, clear, clear blurry, foggy, normal. Yeah, try not to load it in any kind of way. A couple options that could be the thing, give some suggestions about what we might say about that and or something else. It still is going to want to get cut back every time you do it so you don't say that same thing over and over. But that quality question on the reorientation side helps you to track the marker and gives people something to do while they're reorienting until they're doing it of their own. So I've got a few tips around all of this that I'd like to just share almost rapid fire. You know, it's like what I've just been describing is the idea of structuring for success, helping to introduce things in a progressive way that can build one piece to the next so that everybody is feeling competent in the task and aware of what the task is. Building on that, reiterating on that, it's a fantastic way to go in sessions rather than just assuming people know what you're talking about and coming in and cleaning things up if you ask for something that they don't. Then as we were talking about, if you're, if you're introducing orientation in a stepwise fashion like this, if you progressively increase the sense of complexity, you'll keep the feeling of success and validation and we're moving in the right direction and this just isn't wasting time and repeating the same thing over and over again. Also in there is that as you dip down into the felt experience or out into orientation, if that's a progressive process, you can linger into it, as we were talking about in the last episode, 93, on lingering or moving on. It's like you can kind of just lean into it a little bit and lean into it a little bit more and eventually find out that people that you thought were never going to slow down and never orient are actually talking about the window that they can see that they didn't notice before. Also, we've got to keep our own orientation, our own free orientation. We can't just get fixed in our sessions. We need to be modeling what it looks like to let ourselves look around. And while some clients do need more eye contact, it's probably pretty important for you to regularly check in if you're letting yourself look around freely rather than get caught up in staring straight at a person's face almost like in a sympathetic narrow vision kind of way. Plus, the more your head and neck is free to move, the more your eyes and face kind of show changes, the more you'll be kind of signaling over ventral vagal 
kind of signals, which, you know, it's, it's a, it's a thing. It's like, you got to get it in there under the radar sometimes, but it's, it's the right signal to be trying to get across at the right amount. As long as you're in the right amount. There's a whole nother thing in here about how to explain the value of orientation. And I'll tell you my primary thing is to try to get out of that. And I usually say something like, well, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for this. There's a bunch of science behind it and everything. I wonder if we could just maybe put that aside for a moment and instead just experiment with it a little bit. And then we can look at some of the reasons if necessary, because it's, you know, it's like we could either do it or we can kind of like talk about it. And it's like, we're more or less here to help you feel different, not just know something different. So I'm not saying I, that this is going to be the big profound thing that's going to change your life, but it's part of the process of what I have to offer here. That's a kind of way that I often try to just say, hey, this is big, heavy reason for behind this. In fact, there is. There's a whole bunch of big, heavy science behind this. And I'm going to try not to have to explain it to you because I don't want to make a mistake in doing so, which I'm happy to say I probably wouldn't feel too burdened by that. But it's a waste of time if I can get your investment without that. For other folks who don't have so much, and of course I didn't at one time too, ability to explain why orientation would be valuable as a kind of thing to invest a whole lot of one's attention toward. If you don't have all that, it could be just a line, you know, it's like, there's a whole bunch of science behind this. Maybe we could play with it rather than try to explain it all. You of course get to find your own way to get out of your little traps that get set out there. And then finally, if you can't address this as a formal pattern, if it feels like something you'd really want to address as a formal pattern and you can't, I would say still keep it in sight as something that you're trying to get back to. My impression is that I'm, I'm trying to start here. And if I can't, because we're getting swept away by the content, I'm probably going to turn and follow as per episode 43 on the formula. It's like, I'm going to I'm going to go in there and swim with you, but I'm, I'm looking for the next window that I can invite or impress or suggest or kind of even do myself as a primer, more orientation so that we might be able to get back here as a starting place. And that admittedly can take a long, long time to get to sometimes, but it's still a, a place, at least in my way of thinking, um, that I'm trying to go. And that, my friends, I think brings us to the close of episode 94 of Twig's Essay Reflections. I hope there's something there that's been helpful to you personally and professionally, and I certainly do appreciate your efforts out there at finding your own way to invite people successfully into more orientation. It's so much better to be able to see this beautiful world. Take good care out there. I'm wishing you well. Bye bye now. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. And here's a quick tracking twig moment for episode 94. 94, hello? Episode 94? On a project with 100 eventual episodes, 94 is pretty close to completion. Oh, yeah. Resistance is strongest at the end, but I am in the right direction, and I am, I'm on my way. Thank you very much. So glad to have your company.
that's that. <laughs>